Okay, Matthew chapter number 12. We'll pick up where we left off last week. And I uh, would encourage you to, to turn there if you do have a Bible or if you don't, there's a pew Bibles in the back of the pew. It's always helpful for you to be able to see what I'm seeing as we go through. I try to share much of the scripture on the screen, but maybe that might be even be hard to read it sometimes. So I would encourage you to turn um, and follow along Matthew 12. And this morning we're going to look at verses 22 down through 32. There's a saying that goes like this. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Now you may wonder where that saying comes from. That is a kind of the half-joking moral of probably one of the more well-known tales of deception in history um, called the Trojan Horse. In the Trojan Wars around 1200 BC, um, both authors Homer and Virgil recount this story of the Trojan horse. And in the story, the Greek army led at this time by Odysseus had held the city of Troy in siege for somewhere around 10 years, but had not successfully breached it. So the Greeks then feigned a, a cease of war. They constructed a large wooden horse on wheels and sort of left it as a gift to the city of Troy. And then while the citizens and, and soldiers of Troy could see, the armies of Greece sailed away on their ships. Well, you might know how the story goes. Within the horse were hiding some of the key Greek troops, and under the cover of night, uh, after the city of Troy had pulled the Trojan horse inside and accepted this gift of peace, well, these troops snuck out and unlocked the city gates for the rest of the army to come in that had turned around and sailed back in the darkness. And uh, there's obviously always question of how true and what details of that story are true and made up, but it's a good example. In fact, probably one of the greatest examples of what we have come to know as the idea of the big lie. The big lie is this idea of a lie that is told that is so unbelievable that you almost have to believe it because you can't imagine that somebody would make it up. Probably most tragically, that idea of the big lie is most well-known in the schemes of Nazi Germany around the events after World War I and into World War II, when the, the big lie became so incredibly bold and large scale that most of the nation of Germany believed what was being told to them about the Jewish people. But sometimes this happens on smaller scales as well. Sometimes it's not so big a lie, but sometimes we even tell ourselves big lies, lies that we know are untrue, but we repeat them often enough and loud enough in our thinking that they become convincing enough to believe them. Well, in this passage today that we're going to read, the Pharisees, well, they're after Jesus again, big surprise there. And this time they're caught up, we see, in one of these big lies. And this one, as we're going to read, has eternal significance. So let's read from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse number 22. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. 
Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided itself against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this passage. I admit at the onset here that portions of this passage are difficult to hear and maybe at first glance are difficult to understand, but uh, we know that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth, to guide us, and we pray that you would do that even now as we study this. May we glean from it um, the point of what Jesus was teaching and showing. May we take from it both warnings and comfort, promises, and also clear light. And may you show us what we need to see. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This passage starts out with the healing or the deliverance of a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. It was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that he spoke and saw. And this is not the first time that we have seen something like this happen with the accusation that the Pharisees make. Because in verse number uh, 24, When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. We saw something very similar in Matthew 9, where we read this. As they were going away, behold, the demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, and the demon had been cast out. The mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And then, of course, Jesus himself, when he was speaking and sending out his disciples on that first mission, so to speak, he warned them of this. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Much like the Sabbath controversies that we began to see last week, it seems that the Pharisees refused to believe and allow that Jesus was working these miracles by the power of God. The implications of what that meant were too much for them, it seems. So in chapter 9, Matthew records this attitude of the Pharisees. In chapter 10, Jesus acknowledges the attitude, but here in this section of chapter 12, Jesus finally addresses the seriousness of 
this attitude and this accusation by the Pharisees. And these verses that we read today, verses 22 to 32, really make up an interesting group of verses because they start with a miracle, a display of the very goodness and mercy of Jesus that we have seen expressed in Matthew over the last two weeks, the character of God to bless and redeem and restore. And then because of the Pharisees' response, Jesus begins to teach in a way that's almost like parables. In fact, Mark, in in his account of this story, does call these teachings parables. And finally, the paragraph closes with what is probably one of the hardest sayings of Jesus recorded. Now, there are many of these sayings in the gospel records, sayings like, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Or unless a man hates his father and mother and children, et cetera, he cannot be my disciple. But perhaps this saying right here in the middle of Matthew 12 is the hardest. And perhaps this saying out of any other difficult to understand teaching of Jesus has sparked the most anxiety and worry and fear of any other saying, because here we have Jesus, merciful and kind, compassionate and forgiving, teaching about this one sin that he says will not be forgiven, ever, either now or in eternity. Being the first Sunday of the month, which we typically observe the Lord's Supper and we're going to, the idea of of sin and forgiveness is on our minds. We've we've read about it in both of the Psalms that were read uh, earlier. We've sung about it in all four of those songs, remembering the sacrifice, the atonement, the washing of our sins, the imagery. We should pause and think about forgiveness. And this idea of this unforgivable sin is one that has plagued many people and thinkings. And uh, my goal today is not to explain it perfectly because there's certainly depths of it that even I don't understand and nobody truly does. But I don't want to leave you comfortless. So we'll take this passage in order today and we will address that elephant in the room of what is the unforgivable sin. But uh, let me just say at the forefront that if you're in the least concerned before God and the Lord Jesus Christ that you have committed the unpardonable sin, then almost assuredly you have not. And we'll leave it there for now. But the big idea of the passage really comes from verse number 30. I want to read that again because it says this. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We'll see the main point of this sermon today is this. In knowing and following the true Christ, there is true forgiveness. But apart from the true Christ, there is no forgiveness. First, we'll see verses 22 and 24, how the story starts out with a miracle, with the miracle. In several cases in Matthew, um, we read of miracles, specifically in chapters 8 and 9, and we have accounts of miracles, even some familiar to this one, 
And we've seen now how Matthew is writing his record and he tells about the miracle, but he also uses that as an opportunity to, to teach about what the miracles were really for. And it's not only Matthew that does that, because really that's, that's just what Jesus is doing here. So Matthew kind of follows Jesus' lead in recording these miracles in that way. Jesus in his miracle working is showing purpose. He's showing and answering the question, what are they for? What is the, the meaning behind it? The miracles were signs, but not signs unto themselves. And in essence, they didn't just show that Jesus could do miracles. They were signs to show a greater occurring, a greater vision, a greater appeal. And in this case, the problems were threefold. We read of the man who was demon oppressed, and because of that, was blind and mute. Now, the imagery is, is strong here, and we shouldn't miss it. Because of the evil spirits, the power of the evil one, this man was out of his own control, and he was unable to see or speak. That is, he was essentially left helpless. No control, no vision, no communication. It sort of describes an emptiness that is palpable and shocking. That similar account in Matthew 9, where the, the demon oppressed was mute, he couldn't speak. And there, when Jesus delivered him, the people marveled and they said something amazing. Never has anything like this been seen in all of Israel. Well, here in this story, it's as if the stakes were raised one step because the man was mute and also blind. We've talked about the significance of the healing of blindness in the New Testament, how that Jesus was the first to do that. It was really a sign of his kingdom and his messiahship. But this man also illustrates for us the bruised reed and the smoldering wick that we read of last week. An outcast of society, a relatively empty existence, a person with no real ability to better himself, others, or his surroundings. And there's also imagery here that's fitting for the idea of, of forgiveness and deliverance because blindness and being under the power of the evil one certainly describes the world spiritually, like perhaps the most famous hymn ever written, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This miracle displays the power and the greatness and the mercy and the loving kindness of Jesus to, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the prisoner free. This man was blind, mute, and a prisoner to Satan, but Jesus healed him. And Matthew uses that one word to cover it all, both the delivering from the, the demon possession and the healing of his physical maladies. It's sort of that idea of deliverance. And we could ask the question even now, have you experienced that deliverance? the deliverance that only Jesus can supply. Well, what comes next is the most profound response of people that we have read of in Matthew to this point. 
Verse 23, all of the people, it says, were amazed. All of the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now, evidently, there were a large amount of people because uh, depending on which translation you're reading, it might say all of the people or the crowds or all of the crowds. Really, the idea is crowds of crowds. In other cases, we've read that the people were amazed or even the crowds were amazed. But in this case, it's all of the crowds that saw what took place were amazed. And amazed is a strong word. We use the English word so frequently and flippantly that it it sort of loses its meaning. Uh, This week, Lizzie and I and the family spent a few days up in Maine, and uh, I enjoy seafood. And, you know, at one point I probably took a bite of a scallop and said, wow, that's amazing. But was it really amazing? I mean, it, it was very tasty, but was it amazing? The word amazing that Matthew uses here is to be astonished to the point of being overwhelmed speechless, blown away, in awe, dumbfounded. Crowds of crowds were in awe, dumbfounded at what they had seen. And the response went even further because while many were left speechless, some were able to compose their thoughts and speak, and what came out of their mouth is really a pinnacle point in Matthew because they say, can this be the son of David? Notice the idea of seeing and speaking is important in this text. The demon-oppressed man was healed so that he could see and speak. These crowds saw what happened, and they spoke an amazing sentence, an amazing question. Do you remember Matthew 1? One, way back, this was a long time ago when we studied this. Matthew 1, 1 starts out, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All along, Matthew has been telling us that Jesus is the promised son of David, the Messiah, the son of God. We saw it teased a few chapters ago when two blind men were healed and they called Jesus the son of David. But if you remember, he kind of hushed them down at that point. But now it's not just two men, but crowds of crowds are considering this question. Can this be him? Is this the Messiah? Is this the son of David? And of course, we know the answer is yes, it was, it is. And I want you to think as well, because we have been on the same journey together, seeing and hearing what Jesus has done, and think, what do you say about him? Perhaps, and I think for most of you, you've claimed him as your Savior and Lord for a long, long time. But perhaps for some of you, you have not. And maybe you're asking that question, could he be who the Bible really tells he is? Could he be the one, the deliverer, the savior? The crowd saw and they spoke like the mute and blind saw and spoke. But the Pharisees also saw the same thing, heard it, heard the response, 
and they spoke something very different. Verse 24 says, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Again, this is not the first time this has been uttered. Faced with the overwhelming amount of people who were asking the question, considering that that Jesus of Nazareth might be the Messiah, the Pharisees seems like they're feeling a little bit pressured, a little trapped, so that they must do something about it. We talked about the idea of the big lie, a lie so large that it's hard to believe it could be a fabrication. Well, here the Pharisees uh, sort of string up their big lie, despite the evidence, despite the signs, despite the obvious implications, they say Jesus is not who he says he is. He's working by the power of Satan. Beelzebub is a name borrowed from a Canaanite god. It it comes over to really mean the lord of filth or the lord of flies. Here it's to refer to the devil, the, the prince of demons. And this statement, this position, this lie is what comes into question for the rest of the passage today. What we see and say are very important. Like Jesus' words about Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, had they received these opportunities, Jesus said they would have repented. But the Pharisees saw this same thing, yet they wielded these lies. So secondly, we see the parables. The parables, if you're following along on the back of your bulletin. Beginning in chapter number 13, we're going to see a number of Jesus' parables, and I'm looking forward to that. That's a very interesting section in Matthew. But here, Jesus uses a couple kind of parabolic, if you will, teaching methods. And again, I said earlier, Mark actually calls these parables in his account. But a parable is simply to take a a spiritual truth and cast it alongside a life experience to illustrate it. And in this case, Jesus makes two arguments as to why the Pharisees' statement about him was wrong. Look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, that's an amazing statement right there. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. We see here that that deliverance from demons and that idea is not new with Jesus. There are indications that other people in that era did cast out demons occasionally, somewhat rarely, but occasionally. And we don't have any reason to believe that God wouldn't have done that necessarily through other, through other righteous men, through other faithful men. So the Pharisees didn't have a trouble believing that demons could be cast out. But the Pharisees also knew that if it were being done, it had to be done by God's power. And Jesus illustrates that. He says, a kingdom cannot stand if it's divided. A house cannot stand if it's divided. If Satan is warring against his own kingdom, then he's defeating himself. And then Jesus brings it closer and says, 
if your own sons cast out demons, what does that say about them? It's sort of like Jesus is saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either you believe that God alone delivers people from the power of the evil one, or you condemn your own sons for working under the power of the evil one. We read on in verse number 29, the second argument goes like this. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus indicates that he is fighting here against a great enemy, the evil one. And if you want to break into a heavily guarded place, you must first somehow disable the guard. In this case, Satan is the strong man who must be bound. And the binding of Satan is a key fulfillment of the Messiah. And Jesus, by his many instances of casting out demons, and really first, by his defeating the power of Satan in his wilderness temptation, has shown that he is just the one that can do that. All of this, again, serves to teach, serves to show. Now, I skipped over verse number 28 for a second, but that's really the main point of these parables. Look at verse 28. If it is by the Spirit of God, Jesus says, that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's the sticking point. That's what all the evidence has been pointing to. That's what John the Baptist proclaimed. That's what the miracles proclaim. That's what Jesus' teaching has proclaimed. That's the whole point of the Gospel of Matthew but that is what the Pharisees refuse to admit, refuse to believe, refuse to go along with. Even from Jesus' baptism, the evidence has mounted. The Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove. And God the Father, his voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God had come upon the people. That is why the message of repent for the kingdom is at hand was so critical. But it was exactly that message that the Pharisees were rejecting. And they went beyond simply rejecting it. They denounced it, they slandered it, and they stuck their noses up at it. And they fa fabricated lies about it as well. Remember, at this point, they had determined to destroy him, to kill him. They were dead set against him. No matter how true, how obvious, and how clear the information was, they did not, rather would not, and could not go along with it. That leads us lastly to what I've called the puzzle, because it puzzles some people, including myself at times, but we'll give it our best stab this morning say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Look at verse number 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now that verse is clear. There's really no question about verse number 30. Jesus is exclusive. There's no middle ground. You're either with him or you're not. 
And in this case, you're either with him or against him. And that message goes forth to today as well. There is exclusivity in Jesus Christ. You are either a subject in his kingdom and calling others into that kingdom. As he says, you either gather or scatter. In John's gospel, to step aside for a moment, Jesus is just as explicit when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And later on, the apostles would proclaim the same exclusive message. In Acts 4.12, Peter said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus, in essence, is not holding back here in his interaction with the Pharisees. To use a term, they have taken the gloves off, and Jesus' gloves come off as well. He gives it to them straight. But what comes in verse 31 and 32 is really the more interesting part. And this section of scripture has has been thrown around It has been tossed about, so confused and so twisted at times that often we're afraid to even talk about what it means. So here's the question. What is this unforgivable sin? Jesus speaks about a sin that will not be forgiven, either now or in eternity. In Mark's gospel, it's called the eternal sin. I want to share a little bit of testimony because as a pastor and before we came here as a youth pastor and associate pastor, I've had people ask me on more than one occasion, is fill in the blank the unforgivable sin? Now we must remember these words of Jesus to the Pharisees are meant as a wake-up call to their prideful, arrogant, stiff-hearted attitude. They are not meant to frighten those with soft and sensitive hearts. I've heard the question asked more than once out of fear, something like this. I've been divorced. Is that the unforgivable sin? I've committed adultery. Is is that the unforgivable sin? Even even more difficult at times. Uh, My son committed suicide. Tell me. Is that the unforgivable sin? And in those moments, hearing those questions, uh, to be perfectly honest, you want to embrace the person asking the question and slap the person who led them to believe it. Because those are lies. If you have heard any of that, know that neither Jesus nor any other place in Scripture teaches that any other sin no matter how heinous, fits in this category that Jesus is speaking of. He is very specific here, and his teaching has to do with what the Pharisees had said. Jesus says, the sin that will not be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And these passages we have in the Gospels are really the only clear places that speak about it in these terms. So we cannot stretch Jesus' words beyond their meaning. To do so is irresponsible and cruel. So what is the unforgivable sin? Well, first, 
It is not unintentional. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin by accident. Specifically, namely, Jesus says, the sin that will not be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy in its simplest form is slander against God. Slander is speaking evil of someone when you know it is not true, which indicates the opposite, that you know what is true. Jesus gave this teaching to the Pharisees. He used those illustrations to say that he was, in fact, casting out demons by the power of God's Holy Spirit. The evidence was undeniable. So it is not unintentional. It's also not any number of particularly heinous sins. The Pharisees knew. They knew now. They could not deny, honestly, that it was Jesus that was doing these works by the power of God. And if they knew that, but still attributed that work to the power of Satan, then their words were in fact slander against God's Holy Spirit, a purposeful lie, choosing sides, choosing to call God's works evil. Now, there's a question here that comes up sort of in between the lines, and the question is, had the Pharisees actually committed the sin, or was Jesus just warning them about it? Well, in reality, the text doesn't actually tell us. Safe to say, though, they were dangerously close. And Jesus' warning is very potent. It's almost as if he's saying, now that you know and cannot deny without a doubt that my works are actually works of God. Be careful what you say. There is a sense in which when a person has been enlightened to the point of knowing beyond a doubt that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God, that it's God's power on display, beyond a doubt, and a person willingly chooses to identify God's power as the power of the devil, then that person, Jesus says, is in a place where he will not be forgiven. What about the distinction between the Son of Man and the Son of, or in the Holy Spirit? Because there's a distinction here. It says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. In verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. We must take that in context as well. Jesus is not saying that he is, as the son of God, less than the the third person of the Trinity. He's not saying that he's less important. But at this time, it's very possible that people could have seen Jesus and his works and not have known that it was God in the flesh. We're privileged with the, the rest of the New Testament, which fleshes that out. But when Jesus was speaking at this point, It was a bit ambiguous. So someone could speak out against him. And he says, that will be forgiven. That can be forgiven. They could have been ignorant of who he truly was. But the Pharisees at this point could not speak out ignorantly against God's work. That would have been willing, malicious, and intentional. And it would reveal that their hearts were so hardened and so stiff that Jesus said, they will not be forgiven. 
Think of it. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who really leads us to and grants us repentance. The Holy Spirit is the one who shows us our sin and our need of forgiveness. Jesus in John 16 says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, which is the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. If the Holy Spirit has revealed to the Pharisees that he is truly at work and has shown them their error, and in full acknowledgement and willful dispute, they say, nope, it's the power of Satan. In order to deceive, in order to lie, in order to distract from Jesus Christ, then that is blasphemy, true slander, and that would be the sin that Jesus says will not be forgiven. Within all that, however, Jesus' words do offer some hope because you may hear that and you may ask, can my sin be forgiven? Jesus says here, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. It is very likely that you or anyone you know has committed this specific sin that Jesus is speaking of. And I would venture to say that Jesus is the only one who can actually truly judge whether a person has done that. So assuming when somebody has gone, so to speak, too far. But it is 100% likely, or rather, it's 100% assured that you have committed a host of other sins, and myself as well. What we do matters. Our sin is offensive to God. It does require forgiveness. Every other sin, even the sin of unbelief, is forgivable, but they are all forgiven the same way. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That text, uh, as we close today, shows us three important things. One, if you say you have no sin, then you are telling yourself a big lie, a lie that is so bold that you just might believe it. And human nature tends toward telling ourselves that lie, that we have no sin. But if Jesus is who scripture reveals him to be, and if all of this is true, then we must reckon with that lie. We all do have sin, and it does require forgiveness. The second thing is that if we confess, he will forgive. And confess is more than just telling somebody else that you have sinned or you've done wrong, and it's even more than just telling God that you have sinned. It really means, the word confess means to agree, to say the same thing. It's to agree with God about our sin. It's to say to God, not only God, are you right about sin, but I have sinned and I need forgiveness. And thirdly, that text in 1 John teaches us that Jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sins. 
He is faithful and just in forgiving our sins. That means it is right according to his character and nature, and he is just in doing so because he has paid that forgiveness. This confession, this repentance, this calling upon Christ for forgiveness is something that you must do in coming to God. But for those of us who have been Christians a number of years, we must also keep that attitude of repentance toward God in our daily lives as well. For we do stumble and fall. So you may ask the question, have I committed the unpardonable sin, blasphemy against God's Holy Spirit? Only Jesus can truly answer that. But if you are asking these questions, if, if your heart is sensitive and yearning for forgiveness, if you are confessing and agreeing with God, then you are not in the place that the Pharisees were. Sin, and your sin specifically, is still serious. It is still damning before God. But there is true forgiveness through Jesus and Jesus alone.